The following message is by Pastor Travis Cardwell. This sermon was preached at Baptist Church of the Redeemer. For more sermons, please visit bcredeemer.org. Think for a minute about an aspiring salesman who is feeling the pressure at work um, to hit certain benchmarks every month or he'll likely be fired. His co-workers don't actually have a problem fudging the numbers to make the results look better than they really are. And this month, he's behind. Or think about the young professional who's been working intentionally toward a promotion for over a year, only to have it go to someone else in her group. Think about the young single lady that sits at the wedding reception of her best friend. And then underneath the the smiling face and all the picture-taking, She's actually mourning because her dreams of marriage and children and a white picket fence seem to be slipping away. Or think about the young Muslim college student who has realized after he's come home from a church retreat that he, in fact, has become a Christian and is committed to trust and follow Jesus. And his parents have made him choose between Christianity and having a family, or possibly between living and dying. What do all those situations have in common? I think on a spectrum, we we would say that they all seek to expose what we truly believe in, our, our deepest allegiance, our greatest love, our true God. We live in a world that encourages balance and moderation, so it's still okay in most circles to be a Christian, but like other things, don't just don't be a radical Christian. Usually that means don't let your religious preferences actually interfere with your real life. Do what you want to do on Sunday or whenever, but live like everyone else. But biblical Christianity doesn't tell that story. Conversion to Christ is a complete overhaul, a new birth, with resulting new allegiances, affections, loyalties, and responsibilities. Jesus is our King. His last name isn't Christ. That word Christ means anointed one or Messiah. Jesus is the anointed king who brings in a kingdom. God's kingdom. Now we live in a time when that kingdom has already broken in. But has not been fully consummated yet until Jesus comes again. And yet the the victory has been won decisively at the cross. The king has been revealed and our mission has been given. Our passage today is about our response to the true king. There are opposing forces at work. But God's kingdom and God's king are immovable. Let me just outline these chapters for you. We're going to be covering a, a large quantity of text this morning. We won't read all of the verses, chapters 18 and 19 and 20, but I want to give you the flow of what's going on. You get the big picture of what's happening here in this section before we kind of dive in and we'll jump around just a little bit. We just finished studying last week one of the most famous stories the world has ever seen in David's defeat of Goliath in chapter 17. But as soon as the dust clears, from that, that victory, we learn there are two drastically different responses to this new person who's come on the scene, this young anointed king named David. The first scene there in chapter 18, so look at chapter 18, verses 1 to 5, 
there you see Jonathan's reaction. If you remember, Jonathan is Saul's son. You see Jonathan's reaction to David and his love for David. That is directly contrasted by Jonathan's father's reaction. Saul, beginning in verse 6, all the way down to verse 16. We see Saul's jealousy and anger, that's putting it mildly, toward David. So Saul seeks to kill and manipulate David by luring him in with his daughters in marriage. You see that in verses 17 to 30. He offers his daughters in marriage sort of in exchange for certain privileges against the Philistines, hoping that David would would die in battle. Then we see in chapter 19, you flip over there, how Saul's own children, Jonathan and Michal, his daughter, protect David from Saul. You see that in chapter 19 down verses 1 to 17. Two examples of that really clearly. And then God himself actually through the Spirit saves David's life in verses 18 to 24. And then finally in chapter 20, that whole chapter is is devoted really to Jonathan and David and the way Jonathan himself risks his life for David and they end up parting ways under terms of a covenant. So that's the gist of this this text, where we're we're heading. And remember the trajectories for David and Saul are crisscrossing. Saul is going down, David is going up as the new anointed king. In Matthew chapter 6, Jesus speaks about dangers and religious hypocrisy. And he warns there that you can't serve two masters. We can't serve God and money. And then right after he addresses why we worry and are anxious about God's provision for us, he concludes that whole section with this exhortation, which I just think summarizes the, the, this text well. That would be the main point. Jesus says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So I just want to point out three encouragements to do just that. To seek God's kingdom first with your life, and in particular to seek and pursue his king. These, these exhortations are listed in your bulletin. On, um, you'll find them there listed out. Let me give them to you now. First, we ought to seek God's kingdom because, number one, the king is faithful. The king is faithful. Second, we ought to seek God's kingdom because the king is worthy. The king is worthy. And finally, number three, seek first the kingdom because the king will be exalted. The king will be exalted. The kingdom of God, as we know it today, has its roots in the, the budding kingdom that we've been studying here in First Samuel. The obvious differences, um, we're not dealing today with an ethnic people, with military commands, much more of a, of a spiritual commands, but no less real. The kingdom of God breaking in and demanding allegiance from its followers. And I think this passage helps us to see the necessity of just knowing, worshiping, and following that true king. So first, let's, let's pursue and, and, and follow his kingdom because, number one, he's faithful. Number one, the king is faithful. There are several what I, what I would call just controlling themes in this passage. Love, deception, uh, loyalty, faithfulness. But I'd say the umbrella that you could place over all those things would be the theme of covenant. So we see great love, great loyalty, unity, submission, and service, risk-taking, all flowing from a covenant, a promise between David and Jonathan under God. So look with me at chapter 18, verse 1, as we see this uh, unfold. 
As soon as he had finished speaking to Saul, this is, this is right after the victory of David and Goliath, and David is in there talking to, to Saul. The soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David. And Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And Saul took him that day and would not let him return to his father's house. Then Jonathan made a covenant with David because he loved him as his own soul. So keep the context here of the chapter in view. Jonathan is the crown prince. He is the future king of Israel. David has been anointed as king by Samuel as God's true choice. As the future king. And he's just demonstrated that God is actually with him because of this, the way Goliath has miraculously fallen and the Lord won the victory and the people were saved. Here's the point. David and Jonathan are natural enemies. There is no logical explanation that these two should have a friendship, much less a covenant between them. However, Jonathan sees David not as man sees, but as God sees. If you remember the theme in chapter 16. And so he loved him and even is as one with him in soul. And that love initiates this this covenant. Now, many people want to read into this relationship, especially in our day today, between David and Jonathan, make some kind of sensual, inappropriate relationship out of it. But friends, the text never even alludes to such a thing. That's an example of eisegesis, of taking a meaning and trying to put it in a text instead of taking the meaning out of the text. The love that these men share is surely a kind of close friendship with affection, but it's also a covenant love with with firm and public, even political, implications. So they would have made this bond by cutting an animal in two. Sometimes you hear about cutting a covenant. Cutting an animal in two and then both parties passing between those pieces as if to say, if I'm unfaithful to this covenant, may this happen to me. What has happened to this dead animal? We learn more about the details of this covenant later in chapter 20. Turn over there, chapter 20, verse 14. Chapter 20, verse 14. This is Jonathan speaking, which is significant. He says, if I am still alive, after all this stuff goes down between you and Saul, if I'm still alive, he's talking to David, show me the steadfast love of the Lord that I may not die, and do not cut off your steadfast love from my house forever. When the Lord cuts off every one of the enemies of David from the face of the earth. And Jonathan made a covenant with the house of David saying, May the Lord take vengeance on David's enemies. And Jonathan made David swear again for his own love for him. For he loved him as he loved his own soul. Just before this, Jonathan had committed to David to be loyal to him and relaying information from his father Saul about plans to harm him. But just notice the gist of the covenant. It has to do with David's actions toward Jonathan. Jonathan is the one in power. David has no power now. Jonathan is the crown prince. Jonathan is asking that David would show love to him and to his future family. So he realizes here that God is with him and that he will one day be king. And the love that he's asking for isn't just any kind of of love like I love Lupe Tortilla. Okay? It's a steadfast love of the Lord. That's the word hesed, which is used over 250 times in the Old Testament, representing this covenantal love of God. As one author put it, it carries the idea of love, compassion, affection, but also a tone of loyalty, reliability, faithfulness. Not merely love, 
but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. So this is devoted, dependable, covenant love, all overseen and kept by God himself. And it's this covenant that these men keep coming back to in their times of uncertainty in this passage. And it will be this covenant that David will remember one day after Jonathan has already died and David is actually king. The standard operating procedures for kings in the ancient Near East would be to kill systematically any living relatives of the former regime, to wipe them out. But covenant love overrules culture and tradition and worldly aspirations. So we read later in 2 Samuel 9 of David's treatment of Jonathan's son, Mephibosheth. 2 Samuel 9, 6. And Mephibosheth, the son of Jonathan, son of Saul, came to David and fell on his face and paid homage. And David said, Mephibosheth. And he answered, Behold, I am your servant. And David said to him, Do not fear. For I will show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And I will restore to you all the land of Saul, your father, and you shall eat at my table always. Friends, that's an example of covenant love that's being fulfilled. A promise being kept by King David. David's a king that keeps his promises. He brings a would-be enemy to table fellowship. So I hope you see the gospel implications there. At the end of chapter 20, Jonathan and David are parting ways, but they do so under terms of this covenant, which not only promised mutual care and protection, but also peace. Look down at verse 42 of chapter 20. Then Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, because we have sworn both of us In the name of the Lord, saying, The Lord shall be between me and you and between my offspring and your offspring forever. And he rose and departed, and Jonathan went into the city. So the covenant between David and Jonathan is an early peak at the Davidic covenant. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, pick up on that that word forever that Jonathan uses. In which there, in 2 Samuel 7, God promises to establish David's kingdom and his throne forever. And it's that promise that looks forward to the king that that would reign forever. And fulfill all of God's promises and more. So it would be through Jesus that God's true covenant love would be shown. When instead of an animal being cut in two to signify the judgment that would fall on the one who broke the covenant... Jesus himself, fully God, fully man, became the sacrifice. Knowing that it was the only way to save a sinful people. That we could not uphold our end of the bargain. And so Jesus did it for us. Through his perfect life of obedience and death, he took the punishment that we deserved. And he ushers in a new covenant. One that offers forgiveness of sins. A relationship with God. A a new life through repentance of our sin and trust in his body broken for us, his blood poured out for us. That's what Jesus says as he is there at the, the, the Last Supper in Mark 14. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. For any of you here this morning and you're not used to being in church, we're so glad to have you. I just wonder if you've ever thought about your need for forgiveness, your need for reconciliation 
with God. I wonder if you ever thought of yourself as a competing ruler of the universe. The way we see this competition brewing between Saul and Jonathan and and David. Jesus is the king. And we are the ones who have rebelled and thrown off his rule of our lives. We deserve his judgment. But the good news of the gospel, the, the reason we gather here week in and week out, is because he's offered amnesty. He's offered to us Peace through the blood of his son. He's offered forgiveness. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. And our call to you this morning is to run to Christ. Run to Jesus. Bow your knee to him. He is a faithful king and always keeps his promises to redeem, to restore, to save, and to love us forever. One day we will be in the place of Mephibosheth. Maybe not the same name, but we'll be there when, when our sins call out for judgment and we are looking for someone to say, no, because of the covenant in my blood, this one is mine. This one is saved. This one is forgiven. Friend, don't you want your name to be on that list? Enemies reconciled to God now invited to his table. If you're a member of our church this morning at Baptist Church of the Redeemer, I just want you to think about not just the vertical thing that's going on here between this covenant with David and Jonathan, but the, hor- the, the, the horizontal aspect. There are promises and assurances that David and Jonathan make to each other and to God under God. And I just think about the way we at our church have covenanted together in membership in a similar way. Like Jonathan's covenant with David, ours is rooted in love. Our covenant says at the very introduction, in love out of love for the Lord and for one another. We have made promises, haven't we? To glorify God in our holiness of life, in our life together as a church, in our relationships with one another, and in our families, those of us who are married, in our marriage covenants. And this covenant overrules any other worldly relationship we might have or any natural rivalries that might exist um, in a worldly way of looking at it, any sinful animosities between one another. We are bonded together by the Spirit because we have one King, one salvation, one hope, and one mind. So natural enemies are no more. Racism must die. Division by social class or situation in life. We are bonded together by the Spirit in Christ. I would just encourage you to familiarize yourself. If you allow those words of that church covenant to grow cold in your heart and your mind, read it often. Pray through it. Seek to show others around you this kind of faithfulness that exalts the king, that shows how worthy he is to follow. Trust him. That's the first encouragement. Second, let's think about how the king is worthy. The king is worthy. There are times in our lives, and I think you would agree, when our commitments are tested. It's during those moments when our commitments are tested that the the object of our commitment or promise or loyalty becomes our focal point. So we ask, is my commitment to integrity worth losing my job? Is this person's friendship worth losing another relationship? How much does this treasure of mine really mean to me? 
These are all helpful questions as we think about our relationship to Jesus. Is he worthy of the kind of commitment that he calls for? Is it worth losing everything as long as we have him? These are questions that we see um, kind of illustrated in the hearts of Saul's children, Jonathan and Michal. They had to answer it as it related to David. And here's what I want you to see. In both of their cases, Saul's children show a higher allegiance to David than they do to their father and even their own lives. First, let's see it in Jonathan. Chapter 19, verse 1. And Saul spoke to Jonathan his son and to all the servants that they should kill David. But Jonathan, Saul's son, delighted much in David. And Jonathan told David, Saul, my father, seeks to kill you. Therefore, be on your guard in the morning. Stay in a secret place and hide yourself. And I will go out and stand beside my father in the field where you are. And I will speak to my father about you. And if I learn anything, I will tell you. And Jonathan spoke well of David to Saul, his father, and said to him, Let not the king sin against his servant David, because he has not sinned against you, and because his deeds have brought good to you. For he took his life in his hand, and he struck down the Philistine, and the Lord worked a great salvation for all Israel. You saw it and rejoiced. Why then do you sin against innocent blood by killing David without cause? And Saul listened to the voice of Jonathan. Saul swore... As the Lord lives, he shall not be put to death. And Jonathan called David, and Jonathan reported to him all these things. And Jonathan brought David to Saul, and he was in his presence as before. So Saul's jealousy and anger toward David kind of begins in a private, kind of between him, just him, nobody else knows. But now it's just blossomed in this public knowledge. He gives orders to Jonathan and his servants to kill David. And this is a moment of decision for Jonathan. This is his father. This is his king. And yet he reports to David that Saul wants to kill him. And then he goes to bat for David, declaring his innocence before Saul, which is incredibly risky, as we'll see in just a minute. It happens again in in chapter 20. In chapter 20, David comes to Jonathan saying, Hey, I'm innocent. What's the deal with your dad? He's all over me. He's trying to kill me. By that time, he's thrown a spear at him three times. That's a pretty good indication that he doesn't like him very much. So let's pick up that conversation in chapter 20, verse 2. Chapter 20, verse 2. And he said to him, far from it. This is Jonathan. At the question of whether or not Saul wants to kill him. You shall not die. Behold, my father does nothing either great or small, without disclosing it to me. And why should my father hide this from me? It is not so. But David vowed again, saying, Your father knows well that I have found favor in your eyes. And he thinks, Do not let Jonathan know this, lest he be grieved. But truly, as the Lord lives, and as your soul lives, there is but a step between me and death. And that's true. Verse 4, Then Jonathan said to David, Whatever you say, I will do for you. David said to Jonathan, Behold, tomorrow is the new moon, and I should not fail to sit at table with the king. But let me go, that I may hide myself in the field till the third day at evening. If your father misses me at all, then say, David earnestly asked to leave of me to run to Bethlehem, his city. For there is a a yearly sacrifice there for all the clan. If he says good, it will be well with your servant. But if he is angry, then know that harm is determined by him. Therefore deal kindly with your servant. For you have brought your servant into a covenant of the Lord with you. There's that covenant again. 
But if there is guilt in me, kill me yourself, for why should you bring me to your father? And Jonathan said, far be it from you. If I knew that it was determined by my father that, that harm should come to you, would I not tell you? Then David said to Jonathan, will you tell me if your father answers you roughly? And Jonathan said to David, come, let us go into the field. So they both went out into the field, probably away from listening ears. Verse 12. And Jonathan said to David, the Lord, the God of Israel, be witness. When I have sounded out my father about this time tomorrow, the third day, behold, if, it is, if he is well disposed toward David, shall I not then send and disclose it to you? But should it please my father to do you harm, the Lord do so to Jonathan and more. Also, if I do not disclose it to you and send you away, that you may go in safety. May the Lord be with you as he has been with my father. So hopefully you see what's going on. David is convinced that Jonathan um, is, is not going to hear now Saul's plans because Saul's picked up on the fact that Jonathan and David are close. So they come up with a secret plan to find out whether Saul is indeed seeking to kill David or not. If he's angry about David, his, his absence at this new moon feast, Jonathan's going to come and tell David and David will flee. As Jonathan's loyalty here trumps Loyalty to to David trumps his loyalty to his own father. And it trumps his loyalty to his future chances of becoming king. They decide to set up this way to communicate this secretly. David's going to go hide in a nearby cave. Jonathan's going to come out and shoot three arrows nearby. And if if he's going to take a young boy with him and he's going to say, go get the arrows. And if he says, he yells out, hey, they're on this side. David knows everything's okay. But if he says, hey, the arrows are beyond you, David knows that's the, the, the code word that means you better run because Saul's going to kill you. And so it unfolds like this. Look at verse 24 of chapter 20. So David hid, him, hid himself in the field, and when the new moon came, the king sat down to eat food. The king sat on his seat, as at other times on the seat by the wall, Jonathan sat opposite, and Abner sat by Saul's side, but David's place was empty. Yet Saul did not say anything that day, for he thought, something has happened to him. He's not clean. Surely he's not clean. But on the second day, the day after the new moon, David's place was empty, and Saul said to Jonathan, his son, why has not the son of Jesse come to the meal, either yesterday or today? Jonathan answered, Saul, David earnestly asked for leave of me to go to Bethlehem. He said, let me go for our clan holds a sacrifice in the city and my brother has commanded me to be there. So now if I have found favor in your eyes, let me get away and see my brothers. That little getaway part may have tipped him off. Uh, for, the reason he has not, for this reason, he has not come to the king's table. Then Saul's anger was kindled against Jonathan. And he said to him, you son of a perverse, rebellious woman. Do, I not, do you not know that you have chosen the son of Jesse to your own shame and to the shame of your mother's nakedness? For as long as the son of Jesse lives on the earth, neither you nor your kingdom shall be established. Therefore send and bring him to me, for he shall surely die. Then Jonathan answered Saul, his father, why should he be put to death? What has he done? But Saul hurled his spear at him to strike him. So Jonathan knew that his father was determined to put David to death. And Jonathan rose from the table in fierce anger and ate no food the second day of the month, for he was grieved for David because his father had disgraced him. So after the second day, Saul knew something was up. He didn't buy Jonathan's story. He knows that Jonathan has now chosen the son of Jesse. doesn't really refer to him by his name much anymore. 
over him and over his legacy. And there's real truth in this, isn't there? Jonathan's covenant with David flies in the face of all political and practical sense. No leader of Saul's day would recommend that Jonathan do that. But it's so clear, isn't it, that Jonathan is not seeking his own kingdom. In fact, he's turning his back on his own kingdom. And he is seeking the kingdom of God, serving God's king over and above his own interests. What a question just to ponder this afternoon. Which kingdom am I seeking? Which kingdom am I seeking to serve? Am I seeking to build my own or God's? Jonathan's sister, Michal, shows the same allegiance to David. If you remember in chapter 18, uh, we kind of summarized it in the introduction. Saul offered his daughter's hand in marriage to the man who killed Goliath. Actually, that's in chapter 17. Along with great riches and freedom for his father's house. If anyone beats Goliath, he's going to be rich. He's going to have my daughter. And his parents are going to be free from taxes forever. I just want you to notice that those promises don't actually seem to be happening in our passage. David has killed Goliath. Saul does offer his daughter Merib, but he offers her on a condition there in chapter 18. On a condition that David would fight valiantly for him. Well, hasn't he already done that? Hasn't he already done that against Goliath? And then at the last minute, Saul changes his mind and gives Merib away to another man there in chapter 18, verse 19. But his other daughter, Michal, loved David. Everyone in these chapters loved David, okay? And, and, and Saul sought to use that against David as well. So he says, okay, you can't have this daughter, but you can have this other daughter if you come back to me with a hundred Philistine foreskins as a bride price. Now, the interesting thing about this bride price is that David was poor. He had no money, which is another pointer that Saul's promises to enrich him have not come true. Of course, Saul thought that the law of averages are going to just take over. If David goes out and tries to kill a hundred Philistines by himself, eventually he's going to die, or they're going to be so upset with him, they're going to come after him and assassinate him. Nevertheless, David shows up soon after with not 100, but 200 foreskins. And was then given McCall for a wife. But Saul didn't stop there. At behind-the-scenes manipulation, he just goes right after it, even against his own son-in-law. Look at verse, chapter 19, verse 8. Chapter 19, verse 8. And there was a war again, and David went out and fought with the Philistines and struck them with a great blow, so that they fled before him. Then a harmful spirit from the Lord came upon Saul, and he sat in his house with the spear in his hand. And David was playing the lyre, and Saul sought to pin David to the wall with the spear. But he eluded Saul, so that he struck the spear into the wall, and David fled and escaped that night. Saul sent messengers to David's house to watch him, that he might kill him in the morning. But Michal, David's wife, told him, If you do not escape with your life tonight, tomorrow you will be killed. So Michal let David down through the window, and he fled away and escaped. Michal took an image and laid it on the bed and put a pillow of goat's hair at its head and covered it with the clothes. And when Saul sent messengers to take David, she said, He is sick. Then Saul sent the messengers to see David, saying, Bring him up to me in bed that I may kill him. And when the messengers came in, behold, the image was in the bed with a pillow of goat's hair at its head. Saul said to Michal, why have you deceived me thus and let my enemy go that he has escaped? And Michal answered Saul, he said to me, let me go. Why should I kill you? 
Now, clearly, McCall and Jonathan both are lying to their father. They're purposely deceiving him. I don't think the main point of this text is to commend lying and deception. So I know children are thinking, oh, wait a minute. This is something I can track with this. No, that's not at all what we're seeing here. Often the Bible simply reports actions and doesn't hold them up and commend them. After all, where does this image come from that she lays in the bed? Like, what's that doing in your house? An idol? What's going on there, McCall? I don't know. But what I think we do see is a superior loyalty coming out. She chooses to defend and protect David, not only who is her husband, but is the rightful king. She, she risks that rela- the relationship between her and her father, probably her own life, because of her commitment to David. So the irony for Saul is that everyone in the story is, is trying to help David. He's trying to kill David. And by the way, Jonathan and McCall both learn that siding with David is not easy business. It means sharing in David's experience. It means sharing in David's suffering. McCall faced Saul's wrath when he found out that he was deceived, and Jonathan faced Saul's spear. Yet they deemed this suffering worthy for David's sake. So friends, here's what I just want us to see. There is no neutrality when it comes to following Jesus. No neutrality when it comes to following Jesus. Jesus said in Matthew 12, 30, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. I wonder if Jesus has this story in mind, which he would have known well, of Jonathan and McCall when he said in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves his father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves his son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Jesus is not commending um, rebellion against our parents, but showing where our allegiance must be superior to him as king. And, and as we follow him, we ought not to be surprised by, by suffering and difficult decisions and choices that have to be made, or even rejection because of those choices. Jesus said, remember, John fifteen twenty, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Matthew ten sixteen. behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, so be wise as serpents, as innocent as doves. I think that's the best advice you can take when you're faced with a difficult decision as it relates to following Jesus. Be wise as a serpent and innocent as a dove. We can talk later if you think that McCall and Jonathan have done that or not. I wonder if you're trying to have it both ways. Are you trying to have one foot in the world and one path on following Jesus? Or have you placed a marker in the ground in your life to say that I belong to Jesus. I will follow Jesus from this point forward, no matter what comes, no matter how imperfectly, no matter what it costs, I'm going to follow Christ. What would stand in the way from you making that decision, that commitment? Would it be your time commitment? Would it be your, your busyness of your schedule? Perhaps the fear of others that you have, fear of rejection that you would be turned away from. Maybe you hold a position of influence and that you know if you would lose that influence if you were a little bit more radical in your Christianity, just a little bit more faithful. 
Maybe it really is a family member who's being hostile to the gospel. Imagine these, these family dinners with Saul and David and Jonathan. I mean, whatever you're experiencing, I don't know if it's that bad. Maybe you are having spears thrown at you. Come talk to us if you are. But what's keeping you from following Jesus? Friend, whatever that hurdle is, and I'm sure we can all think of something today, compare it to what we know what will happen in the end. And then just sort of work your way back and to say, that ought to help me today. We know from John's revelation of the heavenly scene in chapter 4 of Revelation, he shows the elders praising Jesus with these words, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and your, by your will they existed and were created. And then in chapter 5, when no one on heaven and earth was found to open the scrolls, Verse 9 we read, and they sang a new song saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed a people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. Uh, Chapter 5, verse 12, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Friends, whatever we lose, whatever we suffer, it is worth it because Jesus is worthy. The King is is worthy. He's worthy of all that we have to follow him and to declare our allegiance to him. He's worthy. That's our second encouragement. Finally, number three, what I want us to see is the king will be exalted. Number three, the king will be exalted. There are two, one of my favorite things to do as we're reading these narratives is to go back and look at the Psalms that David penned as he's going through these experiences. And just think about how those Psalms match up with the actual experience. I think there's two Psalms that we could say match up with these experiences. We know one for sure is Psalm 59. The inscription tells us there in Psalm 59 that David writes this um, as Saul sent men to watch his house in order to kill him. So nothing inspires poetry like that. So it's a psalm of deliverance, beautiful psalm. I would encourage you to read it later this afternoon. But it's also a psalm of triumph. David says in Psalm 59, verse 9, O my strength, I will watch for you. For you, O God, are my fortress. My God, in his steadfast love, will meet me. God will let me look in triumph on my enemies. Psalm 59, verse 16, But I will sing of your strength. I will sing aloud of your steadfast love in the morning. For you have been to me a fortress and a refuge in the day of my distress. Oh, my strength, I will sing praises to you. For you, O God, are my fortress, the God who shows me steadfast love. How sweet it is to sing of our mighty fortress. But also think about Psalm 2. Psalm 2. Why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. There are two ways to respond to this truth. We'll call them Jonathan's way and Saul's way. Notice what Jonathan does. Chapter 18, verse 4. He strips himself of his royal robe and his armor and his weapons, and he gives them to David. That is a big deal. It's like giving away your inheritance right there. It leaves Jonathan defenseless. 
without rank, without position. But don't you see, Jonathan sees a better inheritance, a greater protection, a greater treasure. Friend, whatever it is that, that is missing from your life right now, just know Jesus and the inheritance you have in him is better. And true contentment is only going to be found in him. Everything else pales in comparison. Paul said, indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. This commitment to Christ prioritizes all of our life. That's one way you can respond to this treasure that is Jesus. But let's look at another way. See Saul's response with God's, when, when, especially when God's anointed king is exalted above him. Chapter 18, verse 6. And they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with, joys, with songs of joy, and with musical instruments. And the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry, and the saying displeased him. And he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands. And what more can he have but the kingdom? And Saul eyed David from that day on. If you remember chapter 17, the defeat of Goliath was a win for the Lord. Uh, the Lord's kingdom. The Lord was the one who won the battle. That's a clear emphasis. No, Saul is not content with a victory for the Lord. He, he hears the songs that the ladies are singing. And even though in Hebrew poetry, this is probably not a kind of got you comparison. It's probably just, just happened to, to list their names in a particular order. And then as we read it in English, he hears the victory has been attributed to someone else and not him. And then he just begins this cycle between fear and anger and jealousy until it just eats him up and it will eventually kill him. Because his, his mission is to exalt himself. And friends, that is always a suicidal mission. I wonder if you've thought much about what makes you jealous. Are you aware of your tendencies to kind of bristle at something that should actually produce joy? But you tend to bristle. Why is it that we have such trouble rejoicing sometimes with those who rejoice? But maybe it's just me as, as a pastor hearing what God is doing in someone else's church. And instead of rejoicing over that, secretly kind of harboring, harboring bitterness or making excuses like, yeah, but they're probably not as faithful as me. Friends, that's, that's wicked, but true. I wonder if you can happily rejoice in someone else, else's gifts when someone else gets the promotion, when someone else receives the blessing. And just a reminder here, it's a short walk from jealousy to anger. Notice how quickly Saul moves from eyeing David to throwing a spear at him. Anger is one of those sins that we can just get comfortable with. I, I just wonder if outbursts of anger are seen as a normal means of communication in your home. That's just the way people talk. I wonder what the root is of this. The root of our jealousy, the root of our anger, the root of our manipulation Saul's willing to give his daughters away to, as a manipulative tactic against David. That's when you know you're sick. You need help. Perhaps it's a desire to exalt ourselves. 
Perhaps we are seeking to take the place of Jesus. Instead of joyfully submitting to him as our Lord, we're competing with him for praise and, and from others or being seen as the anchor of our family or our business or our team. We have to receive that accreditation. Maybe we're wanting to set the agenda for our lives. But there can only be one Lord. We, we can't serve two masters. Saul finds this out the hard way. Look at chapter 19, verse 18. Chapter 19, verse 18. After he's kind of gone after David, threw a spear at him, goes after with Michal, verse 18. Now David fled and escaped, and he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And Samuel went and lived at Nioth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Nioth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing as head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul, and they also prophesied. When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah and came to the great well that is at Siku. And he asked, where are Samuel and David? And one said, behold, they are at Nioth and Ramah. And he went there to Nioth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also. And he went and he prophesied until, the, until he came to Nioth and Ramah. And he too stripped off his clothes. And he too prophesied before Samuel and lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, is Saul also among the prophets? A little bit different meaning this time than there was earlier uh, in our study, isn't it? Here I think we see the inevitability of God's sovereign purpose coming to pass. You could just hear Saul saying, if you want something done right, you have to do it yourself. But that was his problem. That's often our problem. We can't do it ourselves. And like his servants, he is overpowered by the Spirit of God, and David is protected while Saul is humiliated. Friends, there will come a day if we seek to just just take it all of ourselves and and try to live life in our own strength that God will strip us of our perceived strength and our goodness and we'll be laid bare before him. Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Friend, bow your knee to Jesus now. He will be exalted. Trust him. This whole section in our sermon ends with Jonathan and David eventually parting ways. And after Saul has this outburst of anger and his attempt to pin Jonathan to the wall with his spear, Jonathan goes out, he shoots his arrows, and he yells out, guess what, is not the arrow beyond you, which is the code word that you better take off because you're in danger. And so David understood that meaning, but Jonathan sent the boy to get the arrow. He comes back and hands him all of his weaponry, his bow and arrow, and sends him away. And David, so which leaves Jonathan defenseless, which again is a sign of his trust in David. And this is what we read. This is how we close in chapter 20, verse 41. And as soon as the boy had gone, David rose from beside the stone heap and fell on his face to the ground and bowed three times. And they kissed one another and wept with one another David weeping the most. In the Old Testament, a kiss signified friendship and affection, of course. It's a culturally different world than we live in today. But 
is also an expression of respect, of a political kind of shaking of hands. Here I think many of those elements are involved, but the symbolism isn't lost on David. Listen to Psalm 2 again. Psalm 2 verse 10. Now therefore, O kings, be wise, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all those who take refuge in him. Friends, seek the king. He's faithful to keep his promises. He's faithful to save and redeem us. He's worthy of all of our affection and our affliction. In the end, he will be exalted. And it's the the covenant love of God through the cross, the new covenant, that keeps us. That Jesus has fulfilled through his body and his blood that we're going to celebrate in just a minute as we take the Lord's Supper. That is where we'll find our true peace. I just wonder if you know that peace. Do you know this love? Not merely love, but loyal love. Not merely kindness, but dependable kindness. Not merely affection, but affection that has committed itself. Jesus could not be more committed. He died for us. And he's worthy of all of our lives. Friends, will we be committed to him. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you for your grace to us in Christ. We pray that you would take this word and let it, its seeds blossom in our own hearts, that we would be faithful, that we would find our security in Christ, and that we would be bold to represent him, and that you would lead us Some of us maybe have difficult decisions even before us today. Lord, we pray that you would prioritize those decisions by our allegiance to the King. We love you so much and we thank you for this time. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. For the glory of God, Baptist Church of the Redeemer seeks to obey Christ in the great commission task of making disciples by the power of the Holy Spirit. You can find out about us at our website, bcredeemer.org.